Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 15, verses 30 through 36, and then chapter 16, verse 5. Hear now God's Word. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And then chapter 16, verse 5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. I originally intended to, for this sermon, to cover both the subject of missions and also evangelism, because obviously these two subjects are closely tied together, uh, one being broader than the other, and the other more narrow, but I've decided to turn it into two separate sermons in our foundation series, and so I'm going to start with the, the broader subject of the mission of the church. Growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, I heard many stories of missionaries and also the call for people to become missionaries. I heard about great mission movements, both foreign and home missions. And as we see in the passage that we just read, missions involves more than the initial work of evangelism. The mission is broad and deep. It includes exhorting and strengthening the brethren. There's also a mutual back and forth between various churches and Christians as we see an exchange of letters and then various people came and went and went back to deliver other messages of encouragement to other Christians. It takes time. Silas, Paul, and Barnabas stayed in Antioch for a while, teaching and preaching, and later Paul and Barnabas would launch out to do other mission works in other places. It's good for us to remember that every church that you see had a beginning in some form of mission work. That's a lot of churches. When I moved to Nacogdoches in the summer of 2000, this church was a mission church. And over the last 35 years as a pastor, I've had the privilege of helping plant seven mission churches So every church starts as a mission, and actually every church continues to be a mission. Our mission includes evangelism, baptism and discipleship, and then establishing even more churches. As the first disciples did, we too should be constantly looking for opportunities. And it's in the context of being busy about the routine work of God, of the routine of God's work, that special opportunities will present themselves. That's what happened when Paul was in Athens. You remember he was waiting for his 
compatriots to join him. And so he basically goes for a walk in Athens and he strikes up conversations with whoever happens to be there. So it wasn't a big plan and a big program. It was just who he was. It was what he did. And then God's providence opens and closes certain doors. In Acts, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, again, uh, were not sitting at home waiting for a supernatural vision. What they were conscious of doing was establishing new churches in Roman provinces. In various ways, we see that they were prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. They moved on to the next likely location uh, for their mission work, but again, the Holy Spirit blocked that effort as well. Later, all of those regions that they were initially blocked from going to were opened up for the gospel, but we need to remember that the Holy Spirit determines even the timing of these kinds of events. Providentially, or maybe humanly speaking, by default, they found themselves in Troas. They must have been perplexed, having come all the way from the southeast to the northwest extremities of Asia Minor. So far, their guidance had been almost entirely negative, or what we would say, God closed the doors. Only now did they receive an open door, a positive opportunity. And like us, in the process of all of this, because they don't know exactly what God's doing, they face some of the normal frustrations. We read in 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus, my brother, But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So oftentimes things don't go as we would like or as we planned. There are things that God brings about and we're not sure what's going on. And it certainly seems like extraordinary means such as visions would come in handy and make life's decisions a lot easier. But such extraordinary means are not available to us. Nevertheless, God uses ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary things. How do we know when the Lord is leading us? Now, I'm going to suggest just four things here, and I want to suggest that all four of them have to be present. First, a desire or an interest. I want to go to such and such a place. I want to do this. I see a need. So the second thing is an opportunity or a need. They need help. I want to go. And then, wise counsel. I don't just make this decision by myself. I'm part of something bigger than me. This isn't just me making this. I'm a part of a church. I'm part of the context. So I get counsel from others who might see more and understand more of a situation and help give some wise counsel. And that's what we see in our text. And then, of course, we have to have the gifts and the means. I may not be very good at what it is. I may not be able to meet that need. I might not be the right person, or I might not have the money or the ability to get there or go or to support what needs to be done. So all of those things have to come together. And so we should be cautious in reading providence, providences, but nevertheless, it is necessary to read those providences. And so we would say, I wouldn't say something like, God's calling me to go to uh, Poland I might say, it seems like God's calling me to Poland. He's given me a desire, 
and the folks over there have invited me to come, and it seems like the doors are opening up. We'll see. I'm going to keep praying about it and see if all of these things come together, and if they don't, then I'll conclude I was mistaken. It seemed like it, but it turned out it wasn't the case. And that's what we see again here with these missionaries. They're they're looking for opportunities, going here, there, and then doors are closing, and then they're shifting and going somewhere else. Moreover, we must work with the wisdom of others. Proverbs 11:14 tells us that there's a there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Author uh, Arthur T. Pearson, in his book The Acts of the Holy Spirit, drew attention to what he called the double guidance of the apostle and his companions in this text, namely, on the one hand, prohibition and restraint, and on the other, permission and constraint. Excuse me, first was prohibition and restraint, and the other is permission and constraint. They are forbidden in one direction, invited in another. One way the Spirit says, go not, and the other he calls, come. So we remember in our mission, in our mission work, the Holy Spirit is the one who is leading the way. It's a supernatural work. We know that all the lost people in the world need the gospel. And we know that we generally are called to go into all the world and preach that gospel. But in the final analysis, right, we must go to some particular place and preach to some particular people at some particular time. I can't go everywhere. You can't go everywhere. And God himself is the chief strategist. Part of God's ordinary means of moving us from one point to another is the persuasiveness of others. This is how we learn about particular needs. This is how God works in our hearts. That's why sometimes we have people come in and speak to us and tell us about what's going on and, and, and tell us what their needs are. Calvin writes of William Farrell, the leader of the Genevan Reformation. He says, Farrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. He's trying to get Calvin to come to Geneva. And after having learned that my heart, this is Calvin speaking, that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by his entries, he proceeded to utter an imprecation that God would curse my retirement and tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I I desisted from my journey that I had undertaken. Farrell was very earnest in his persuasion. God usually makes a path straight by allowing the necessary preparations to proceed without too much difficulty. Practical considerations such as a place to go, the needed funds and supplies, and the means to get there. The sum total of all of these things together in a confluence of providences brings about a unanimity and consensus then among the group. So we say, seems like this is something we ought to do. So Paul, Silas, and Barnabas left for Antioch with the confidence that this was God's will and that God would bless their mission. 
God's original purpose for the world was that it was to be an expansion of the eternal loving communion of the Trinity. One giant mission. Man and woman created in the image of God were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more God-glorifying image bearers, expanding that loving community and communion. Sin spoiled the plan, destroying the communion and separating man from God and man from man and man from woman, too. Uh, Sin spoiled the plan, destroying all this. And this separation was enmity and strife and death. And, of course, then God sent his son to address this central problem. 2 Corinthians 5, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That now becomes the mission. This is the gospel, the good news. The same mission remains with us today. The day of Pentecost marked the beginning of the worldwide expansion of that mission that began in Israel, and now from Jerusalem it would reach to the ends of the earth. Thus Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Twenty years ago, this church was, was the start of a new mission work. An opportunity presented itself to Mary Nell and I, uh, to me and Mary Nell, excuse me, to work with a very small group of Christians in Nacogdoches, Texas, as they expressed an interest in calling a pastor. And we began to pray about it, though we were very doubtful that this is where we were going to go. Nevertheless, we waited. We remained open to God's call, desiring to be wherever he wanted us to be. I'd been involved with the Nacogdoches group already for several years, and then formally uh, taking them on as a mission church of the Texarkana Church, we had a natural interest in their well-being, even if they were a little odd. Um, And so, at that time, um, many things attracted us to them, but not everything, though we were not yet convinced, again, that this is where we should be. And uh, at that time, we were still inclined, actually, to go a different direction, not unlike our story we read about here in Acts. And so then David Alders appeared, not in a dream, but but in the flesh, and was every bit as earnest as the man Paul saw in his Macedonian vision. It wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say that David, as Calvin said of Farrell, Uh, He strained every nerve to detain me. Though he did stop short of invoking imprecation against me, at least to my face. He earnestly pled with me concerning their need for a pastor. The need for the establishment of a reformed church was great in this city. 
and his arguments were persuasive. Um, and uh, God not only changed our minds, but he changed our hearts. The Nacogdoches Church extended a formal call for me to become their pastor. The need for the establishment, excuse me, uh, and I, excuse me, I began to seek to answer that call. And so I met with my elders in Texarkana uh, and sought their counsel and from other pastors. And after much discussion, I received the unqualified blessings of the session of the Texarkana Church. And we showed up here wobbly and very uncertain. That's an understatement, but ready to see what God would do with our meager loaves and fishes. Now remember, every local church is a mission work, an outpost of the kingdom of God, baptizing and making disciples of the nations. And like the original creation mandate, the church is to multiply and to fill the earth with God glorifiers. The mission is to expand the loving communion of the, of the saints to every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And as local churches or missions are established, and they do have to get established, like any growing family, when we look to expand, we then look to expand to reach out further and further, spreading the good news. And we do this in many ways. So now here's a little mission church, small group of people, we're meeting to worship, we're getting to know each other. We're praying for each other. We're doing all kinds of things. And little by little, we begin to grow in every way, just like a young family. And so it happens with the birth of children, with preaching and teaching, which equips the saints for ministry, with the publication and distribution of literature and audio, with ministries of good works in our communities, with schools, works of charity. Every day, in every place, the mission work of the local church reaches out with the gospel of Christ. So looking back at these last 20 years of this mission, we can see that God has blessed our missionary endeavors. And I'd say, because I know we've got several here who were members at the Texarkana Church, and uh, let me just make a comment here, that you know God does works in mysterious ways, and I can say that what we see here is the product of much of what went on there. So those are not unconnected things. They're not separate things. This is another incarnation of a work that began way back there. And if you look at church history, you think about that's how things have worked. Church is born. It may spawn off other churches. That church may go away, but those other churches live on. Again, much like families do, much like we do generation after generation. So as I've just thought about this, and I don't have all these numbers nailed down precisely, but to give you a rough idea, we've had nearly 100 baptisms since this church was established. Over 1,000 worship services and sermons. Over 2,000 Bible studies, countless fellowship meals and feasts, innumerable innumerable occasions for uh, counsel and discipleship. Thousands and thousands of prayers. Millions of dollars given and many thousands given for foreign and local missions. Thousands in charity have been given to those in need. We've started two camps that minister to hundreds of young people. Our website had over 4,000 sermons and lessons played just this last year. We helped start and maintain a Christian school. 
We've adopted children. And much, much, much more could be added. But the point is that mission work, this mission work goes on every day from this little outpost. Moreover, God has thousands and thousands of churches throughout the world and throughout history that are doing the same kinds of things as we speak. Now, there's always more that can be done uh, just in our own little circle. And so the mission work here in Nacogdoches, Lord willing, will continue for many generations. Once we're established, we start to look over the horizon and realize that there are many places beyond our local reach that are still in need of the good news. Not only do our local churches engage in this ongoing mission, but so does the broader church. And God is directing his people through the world and throughout history to bring light to all the nations. We're part of a small young denomination that now reaches into 12 countries. In the five years that I served as presiding minister of the CREC Council, our group of 22 churches grew to include 85 churches. And now, I don't know how many we have now, but uh, it's continued to grow and expand. All of this is mission work. And we should take, uh, and we should not take any of this lightly. Now, there's always a few who look around and they want to know uh, why we aren't doing more for this or that other group of people or cause. And I say to them, well, why don't you show us what it looks like? Go for it. Um, you see, mission work is about way more than virtue signaling. It is about doing a lot of little unseen but important things in the kingdom of God. Every time you tithe, every time you pray, every time you show the grace of God to someone, every time you help someone, serve someone, care for a child, extend the love of Christ, every time, that's part of the work. We're the body of Christ. We show the love of Christ in all those ways. Now, some mission work is big and formal and involves committees and budgets. But most mission work is done by everyday Christians at an informal level. Together, both kinds of missions work to expand the kingdom of God. And we'll say more about evangelism next week. And so in God's providence, he opens doors that we could never, ever accomplish on our own. You see, this is bigger than us. The broader church is bigger than the sum total of all of our local churches. We come together to send out evangelists or missionaries to faraway places to reach people who are unknown to us but are known to God. Our commander-in-chief assembles coalitions of his people to accomplish his purpose in calling out of his elect. We've seen an example of this over time. God brought us together with Pastor Volkov from St. Petersburg, Russia, and now there's a growing thriving church in Uzbekistan. As John Piper said, I love this statement, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Now God accomplishes this in a variety of ways. He's the creator of the universe. 
and he's not going to be restricted by us. I love when I think about how Jesus healed people. How did he do that? Well, sometimes he spoke, and sometimes they touched the hem of his garment, and sometimes he spoke twice, and sometimes he spit, and sometimes he spit twice, and sometimes he healed people when they weren't even there. You know why? Because he's God. He can heal people however he wants to. No formula. And thus, throughout the years, he has employed a variety of means and people to call his people and to accomplish his mission. Not one stone will be missing from the temple he's building. When the Father said to the Son in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask? And Jehovah promised, saying, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In fact, the beaches have, by and large, all been stormed, and we're now bringing in the occupational forces. Revelation 11 says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The church in all of her manifestations is on a mission to redeem fallen man. The mission is the gospel, the good news, the death, that death has been conquered and eternal life in Jesus Christ is now proclaimed. And we do that right here and we do it over there and we do it everywhere and we do it formally and we do it informally. After the resurrection, Jesus did not waste any time in implementing phase two of his mission. There was and is work to be done. On the day of the resurrection, at that very evening, Jesus appeared before his disciples and he commissioned them with a task. And this was the same hiding, shivering band of disciples. They were as unlikely to turn the world upside down as you and I are. But just as the Creator breathed life into Adam, so too Jesus now breathes life into his new creation. The kingdom has begun and the king has risen and would soon be enthroned. And it was now time for the regular work of his kingdom and progress to to progress. This mission would employ the apostles and the disciples. And this mission had us in mind as well. We too are involved. And in fact, involvement is a gross understatement. Following Christ is not a spectator event. We are not simply reading a story. We are in the story. Jesus has no interest in part-time or weekend followers. Now this mission appeared, and maybe still appears, to be mission impossible. An unlikely band of followers are about to be commissioned to take the mission of Jesus to the whole world. Seriously. This reminds me of the sto- of stories like Noah and Abraham and David and Jonah and many others in the Old Testament, which is what those stories are supposed to remind us of. All of this is missionary work. The Holy Spirit is given not simply so that God's redeemed people may be blessed with His presence and love, though that certainly follows, 
But more than that, we are called to be witnesses to Jesus and his resurrection so that we may be for the world what Jesus was for Israel. The body of Christ, the church, represents him here and now. We are called to be his missionaries. And so Jesus doesn't simply commission his disciples, including us, to go save the world. He also gives us, the church, what we need to do the job. We read in Ephesians that he has given gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints, for service, or ministry. By the way, this is interesting, the church is what? The bride of Christ. The church is his helper, who also submits to her husband. That is, she is in submission. She comes under the mission. That's what submission is. What was one of the chief objectives of husband and wife? As we read in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. Give me godly offspring. Well, the Spirit is the one who enables the bride, the church, to extend the work of the kingdom And this will be seen in personal and corporate transformation. And the work of the Spirit is is a necessary byproduct of this calling. And so the next phase of the impossible mission of Jesus is the implementation and the expansion of his kingdom. This will be seen, again, in personal and corporate transformation. What started in Nazareth and Galilee is about to spread out. An obscure carpenter born in a cave. Twelve obscure disciples. Small band of people. A crucified Savior. Just a few days after Easter, Jesus appeared again. And this is what he told his disciples to expect. I mean, you've got to really think about the context of this to appreciate the magnitude of it. They think Jesus is dead. And now he shows up after the crucifixion. And he says, not only am I here, not only can you rejoice in that, but let me tell you what's about to happen. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Yes, you. He sets before them this vision of an ever-widening circle of the gospel influence. Perhaps they remembered his parable when he spoke to them about the kingdom of heaven being like leaven. In the next few days, thousands of people would hear and receive the gospel and come into the church. And that circle that started right there in Jerusalem, that circle continues to expand geographically and throughout history right down to this time and place where we sit. We're part of that circle, that mission. And so it turns out that the mission was not impossible. 
Paul, 20 years later, asked, Who is sufficient for these things? And he answered, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also has made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He, like John, gave the right answer. None of us is sufficient, but God enables us to do it by the Holy Spirit. And so, His mission is our mission. We are called, commissioned, and empowered to go. We go to declare the good news that sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. All the problems that separate us from God and that separate us from one another have been dealt with by Him. And so while Paul was waiting in Athens, we read, And his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. He started right where he was. And that's where we're supposed to start. That's where we start our mission with those who happen to be there. We're the body of Christ and we're on the very same mission to the world and this is where God put us. This is where we've been stationed. This is where we've been deployed. Look around you. God put those people in your life for a reason. They need a Savior and a King. They need their sins forgiven. They need a new creation. Paul started with the person in front of him, and then God opened up bigger opportunities. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Let's pray. You are the living Savior, O Christ, the only one who can truly give peace, peace between God and man, and the peace within, which flows from the establishment of objective peace between a holy God and sinful man by the removal of the sin that stands between us. You are the one who has authority to send your followers to all the world. You have laid hold upon us and upon all your people and commissioned us to implement the mission to the world. You have even given your church the authority to proclaim this message. What an awesome responsibility has been placed in our hands. But you have also given the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission which you have given us to do. Pour out your Spirit upon your church today, O Lord. Give us power from on high. In our strength and our own authority, we will accomplish nothing. Any gains we make in our own power will only be superficial and will fade away. And so we confess that we are utterly dependent upon you to do your mission work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, 
peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. When you were baptized, when you joined the church, which is the body of Christ, you signed up for the mission. You were enlisted. You became a soldier of the cross. And now the question for all of us is, how engaged are we in this work? So I want to read three quotes here that I found helpful on this idea. First from N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. Left to ourselves, he said, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy acquiescing in the general belief that things may be getting worse, but that there's nothing much that we can do about them. And we are wrong. Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. And John Piper says missions missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. He continues, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of His name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with His. And for the sake of His name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join His global purpose. Amen. Most high and mighty ruler of the universe, by whom we have been established and preserved, we thank and praise you for your favor shown to our fathers and mothers, and for your faithfulness that has continued toward their children and their children's children. Indeed, you are a covenant-keeping God, and there is no shadow of turning with you. Especially we thank you for your great love in sending your unchanging Son to be the Savior of the world, and in calling us out of our sins into fellowship with him. And we seek your Holy Spirit, through whom we may grow continually in thankfulness toward you, as also into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We bless you, for you have blessed us in our callings. Teach us the lessons of contentment to serve you gladly where we are. Even in our failures, we pray that you would conform us to the image of your Son. Grant to us a fervent love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Enable our brotherly love to continue so that the world might see that we are disciples of Christ. Bless now this Lord's Day as we rest, fellowship, and feast. Continue your mercies toward us, we pray, that all the world may know that you are our everlasting Savior and mighty Deliverer, and that we might honorably bear your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen.